You're listening to the Table Talk podcast brought to you by Food Matters Live. Welcome to the Table Talk podcast. I'm Stephen Gates. I'm a writer and broadcaster specialising in food and science. This episode is our first in a series on sports nutrition. Now, sports nutrition has seen a breathtaking growth in both sales and column inches in the newspapers, and also a little bit of media negativity here and there. So we've assembled an awesome panel of experts who sit right at the centre of this whirlwind market, um, and we're going to be discussing everything there is to know about sports nutrition. Uh, I'd like the uh, panel to introduce themselves, actually. So who have we got Hi, I'm Mike Hughes. I'm Head of Research and Insights at FMCG Gurus. Hi, I'm Kate Percy. I'm an author and founder of health and wellbeing company Go Faster Food. Hi, I'm Mel Billows. I'm Head of Marketing and Consumer Insights for Bolac. And I'm Joe Dale. I'm Category Development Controller at Symix Nutrition. Can you tell us what's, what's driving the growth of the sports nutrition market? Yeah, well, I mean, traditionally, sports nutrition products were aimed at males aged 20 to 50 who engaged in physical activities such as bodybuilding. We've now seen it transcend into the mainstream with around between 50 to 70% of consumers in certain countries trying sports nutrition products. Um, In the short term, the reason for that is consumers are fatigued, uh, they lack energy, they turn to products to help them get through the day. In the longer term, consumers are embracing the concepts of healthy aging. They recognise that their current lifestyles might cause problems later in life. At the same time, they're looking to stay fitter and active until later in life. So there's a lot of consumer demand there, and the industry is meeting it. We're seeing um, a lot of innovation, a lot of diversification and differentiation with protein sources. It's also helped by some traditional snacking markets having something of an unhealthy image, whilst protein has a fun and vibrant image which allows people to move across. So... There's a lot of uh, consumer push and industry pull um, driving this demand. So the big question really is why? why what, what was the sudden acceleration? Why, why did it shift from being a niche? I mean, and I know everyone's trying to grow their market, but this is, it is quite a phenomenon, isn't it? Joe, is it the consumers that have pushed this demand or is it new innovation bringing new products that everyone's gone, ah, we'll go for that? I think it's a mixture of the both. Um, I think what we've seen is if you take a step back and think about how we live our lives today versus how we lived our lives 80s, 90s and noughties, um, I mean, snackies, snacking's definitely one of the big growth engines within the category. Um, and if you think about it, we used to either eat chocolate or crisps, and that was it, or biscuits. And then in the 90s and the noughties, we saw a lot of kind of healthier innovation come through. And then we've seen this whole space of sports nutrition, which I still think is quite a limited, uh, limited definition of the category. But I think um, what we're finding is that, you know, people have got really busy lives. You know, one in four people have got mental illness. Um, if you live within the London M25, and this is a quote from London NHS, you know, you could live 17 years less if you have a mental, a mental illness. If you look at physical, people are obviously looking at how they can control the, control their intake. So what we're getting to now is a nation of people that want to put good calories in but have good energy out. And it's a balance of physical and mental wellness. And, and then you've got an overlay of what we get seeing globally in terms of the planet and the environment. And you know, one in, fi- one in seven people, in fact, it's probably turned to one in five because it's growing so quickly and now vegan. So there's a whole mixture of things, whether it be environmental, but I think fundamentally people are wanting to take back control and their bodies are one of the few areas, you know, they're working hard, they're traveling hard, they're commuting hard. You've got Facebook, you've got Brexit, you've got everything else. And actually, this there's a real step change in people being able to look on the internet, you know, look at their digital devices, do their own research and understand actually 
how they can control and make a positive impact. I mean, Park Run, for example, I know we talked about this last year at Food Matters Live, Kate, and that actually has like 5 million people do that now. And that actually started by a guy who literally wanted to get some space mentally in his head and just go for a run. That's, like I say, got 5 million people, and that's just grown organically. And that's because people people aren't marketed to do it. It's because they want to do it, and they want to get out, and they want to be healthier, be fitter, be stronger, and feel better about themselves. And Okay, so Kate... The- on one side I completely agree with that that we've got people who are more aware and that the people are doing more and they they care more about their nutrition and they combine it with sports but we have this perception of our nation as being a bunch of couch potatoes and so how do you square these two things up yes it doesn't it doesn't quite fit together but I think I was at um, a talk a couple of years ago given by Danny Gray Thompson Dame Danny Gray Thompson and she said I think we should just kill the word sport because sport is just something that, it, you know, it's, it's, it sounds hardcore, doesn't it? It's what, um, it's kind of bodybuilding, it's Olympic athletes, it's, it's that sort of thing. And actually now all those sort of ha- hardcore sports have become more accessible. So if we think of the number of people running the London Marathon um, who are not... Olympic athletes, you know, who who just think, oh, I can do that, maybe. So-and-so down the road did that. Maybe I can do that. Um, so I think that, that sort of sport is now, maybe we call it active lifestyles, getting out, doing something every day. Um, I think it, that whole, we were talking about the, the actual, how the, what the name of the category, sports mm. nutrition, we've got a slight issue with that. And, and I think that is changing as well. Um, People are trying to get off the couch, yeah. but there are still a lot of people who are on the couch. And <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, yeah, I think we're going in the right direction. I think um, we've got, uh, especially with women, um, you know, massive increase in, in women just doing 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 sport or putting kit on, which they didn't used to even dare to do. I'd like to pick up on something that Joe said, which is this idea that the category is potentially overdefined, that sports nutrition is, is, is too narrow a definition. Do you find that in, in, the, in the people that are using your products? We certainly do. I mean, when we look back at the traditional core users of protein, they tended to be male, they tended to be young, they tended to be bodybuilders for aesthetics only. Now when you look at um, how sports nutrition has now evolved into what we call active lifestyle, um, I think you'll see there's much more accessibility for people, particularly women, um, as, as Kate has said. And I think that the sort of acceptance, I suppose, a little bit more of having protein shakes in public and all of the things that were a little bit of a taboo um, have now made this move from much more active, you know, into an active nutrition arena. So I agree, the word sport is probably far too niche now. And there was a there's still an absolute need for sports nutrition. Don't get us wrong, you know, protein, carbs for um, endurance athletes, supplements are still very, very key. But the market accessibility is growing. Mm. So we need to improve our products. We need to have new offerings and we need to branch out to this bigger growing consumer audience. Okay, so. In terms of the specifics, Joe, I wonder if, if you can tell us of your experience. I, I'm, I'm really interested in this idea of this phenomenal growth. Mm-hmm. 
Was there any particular catalyst? Was there a, a public figure? Was there some reason? Was it the Olympics? Was it, you know, what, what's, what is it that really kick-started this phenomenal growth? I think, um, obviously, we've seen a big explosion in things like nutrition bars coming through, and, and that, that's been a massive area. Online space has grown a lot. But with, why? I think. Um, I think the one thing that, and, and this is just a personal opinion, is if you have a look actually in terms of healthier snacking occasions from 2014 onwards, there was a pivotal moment in, I think it was like August 2015, where sugar and the government sugar reduction plans came in. And we saw like the occasions of healthier snacking increase by a billion. I mean, it was just phenomenal over the three-year period. And I think that's where people really started to think about sugar and intake in terms of what they were putting to their bodies, but also just looking at macros in general. Now, if you look at the um, Kantar figures on this, if you go back over the last five years, actual volume growth, physical volume growth, of what we put in our baskets in the UK has grown by 5%. And there's going to be reasons behind that, population expansion, et cetera, et cetera. When you break it down, sugar is still very much a declining macro. I think it's in decline. Oh God, I think it was something like minus 4%. In fact, calories are actually up. But I think what people are doing is they're looking and appraising the, the types of calories that they're putting into their bodies. So actually, saturated fats are up, but it's probably good sat fats. So on all the macros that we've got, there's good sugars, there's bad sugars. There's probably proteins that are, you know, you've got plant proteins, meat proteins. You've got a scale and a spectrum in all of these areas. And going back to those stats, the two leading macros were protein and fiber. So protein's grown 6% in overall volume terms ahead of total volume, and the fiber's grown at 5.5%. So I think, you know, people ask, is this a blip? Is it short term? I don't think this is. I think we've now got fundamentally to a point where health, life is sort of, health is lifestyle and, and lifestyle is health. And actually, you know, it's, it's not, you, you literally, you, you start to eat snacks and take shakes in, it becomes habitual. And we literally are seeing a massive transition in terms of shopper and consumer behavior. Really interesting that you say that, that it might actually be part of part of the catalyst is a government health campaign, mm. or essentially. I mean, there was a, a lot of different things that, that combined at the same time, but I, I think that's really interesting. Um, let's go back to this idea that that it it was a category that had one shape and it now has a different one. Mike, can you fill us in on the on the just the absolute building blocks of of how you see it? So, was it was it a small amount of very specific categories that has now grown? Is is it the numbers being sold of the same products, or, or is it a, a shift in, in the actual products that are being created? Yeah, I think um, the key areas for growth are <clears throat> the beverages and the bar format. They're very convenient, suitable for on-the-go um, when consumers are looking to snack healthily. I think the one thing that we've seen is when, when it comes to the, the sports nutrition market is perhaps not to overestimate the, the size of it and the demand. Uh, the reality is that consumers are not fundamentally looking to change our consumption occasions when it comes to chocolate, potato crisp, sugar confectionery, etc. It's very much targeted at certain occasions when consumers tend to be more health orientated and adopt this debit and credit approach to healthy lifestyles. They'll, they'll be healthier in the morning to justify indulgence in the afternoon. So what so we... Do you do that? I, I, I do, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... What, what we see with this is um, product categories that are specifically aimed around morning snacking occasions like you can pick up um, impulse categories where you can pick up on the go, be it in a petrol station, be it at a convenience shop as part of a meal deal. Those are key, key channels and pr key product categories where the demand is. Mm. So I think it's important to understand that simply sticking high protein on a product 
won't necessarily drive sales. The credibility has got to be there. But also you need to target the, the need state, the occasion and the channel. And that's, that's more important than identifying, um, just thinking it's exploding mm-hmm. everywhere. So the, I mean, there have been quite a few products, uh, cereals um, and, and products that people buy normally where people have just added some protein to it. It sounds like a bit of a sort of sticking plaster <laughs> onto something rather than a fundamental change in how products work. Have you seen this, that, that, that people are just, just kind of adding a word rather than reformulating anything or changing their products, Kate? Uh, yes, I mean, it's been going going on for the past few years now. Um, I don't think it's going to carry on. I think that consumers are just getting more savvy. You know, they, especially the millennials, <laughs> that lovely group of people that we all love so much, you know, they want, they want to know exactly what's in the product that they're eating. They want clean label. Often they want it to be vegan or free from. And um, I, I think the, the protein thing the protein phenomenon well you might have something to say about the smell um i think it has its place um but in specific products where it's meant to be um i you know you know my whole thing is about real food and real food fuels you better and i am absolutely passionate that people should get their protein from from real food, <laughs> um, you know, from eggs or from if, if they're meat eater from chicken, etc. Um, but then there are occasions when you will need more protein, like straight after a workout, for instance. Um, but if you're just going to work and you're getting a meal deal at lunchtime, you're not going to need an extra added protein in, in your in your normal chocolate bar that you might might normally um, buy. Um, so, uh, and I think there's 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 a lot of cynicism in the, the, the protein sort of arena where um, companies are just sticking on protein onto the pack. Uh, it might be a high-protein product. It might actually just have a teeny-weeny bit of protein, uh, added protein in it, but it's got protein on there. So I think there's a lack of understanding um, with, with the consumers and a real confusion. They know that protein is something they should be eating, um, but should it be rice protein, pea protein, whey protein? What is it? What is protein? You know, <laughs> there is a real lack of understanding. But I think it, I, what I really want to say is that people just want to know what's on the pack, mm-hmm. and that is happening more and more. And people are, you know, rejecting packs of certain products because of, of the ingredients. You know, when we're when we're at um, at shows with uh, with our go bites. Literally, people pick up the pack, read the back, and then they say, "Oh, okay, it's got four ingredients. Okay, that's fine." You know, it's just it, it's what people want. I agree with you actually, because when we did some research and we, we did a lot of like videoing of people in homes, asking them what they want, and it is confusing because there are proper government guidelines on what is a proper high protein product. So I think the people, and we've seen a huge amount of innovation, and everyone's slapping protein on the side of packets, and sometimes they're putting percentages on there, they're just putting protein, they're not putting high protein on there. And when you speak to people, they just generally want to understand what's the grammage of protein in this product, and has it got good, clean ingredient lines, to your point, Kate. Super simple and easy to understand, but I think we're in danger of overcomplicating it, because, like you say, it's, the growth's coming through in snacking, Actually, it's still snacking. Nothing's different. You know, it's a chocolate bar, it's a crisp, it's an apple. We're just snacking. We're just choosing to snack on products that deliver purpose 
or, del- or snacking more with purpose. I think 80% of people snack with purpose now. They want their snack to do something extra over and above just being an indulgent treat. It, it needs to do kind of plus one or plus two. And I think that's where we're seeing the difference. And to your point, I think actually what's really interesting, I used to work for a confectionery company, and you're right, in terms of healthier snacking in the morning and more indulgent in the evening. You actually look at the Cantar numbers at the moment, be it off a small base, for the first time we're starting to see growth of healthier snacking occasions in the evening. And that's really exciting to know whether it's popcorn or whatever they're snacking on in their choice in the evening, whether it's it's not mindless munching anymore, it's mindful munching. You know, and that's that's <laughs> oh, the kind of work there. <laughs> that's the kind of the real shift change that we're seeing. And I mean, look, you look at impulse snacking, it's a 12 billion pound category versus what's 150, 200 million pounds, depending on which channels you're looking at. There's huge space for this category to grow, huge. It's just making sure that we're educating people to your point and putting people where they expect to find it on their mission in the right place in store for the right occasions. It should be, it's not as complicated as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so Mel, now uh, you are a protein manufacturer. Well, not yourself, but your company is. Um, somebody putting the, the word protein on their packet and buying more protein from you is probably you know, it's a good thing, isn't it? But is that sustainable? How, how do you see the, the, the use of protein shifting? I think the one thing that we've probably not mentioned yet is taste. So there's a perception that whey protein mm. is not very tasty. And in the past, it hasn't been very tasty. You know, bodybuilders will put up with this because it's a fact of life for them. They just want the maximum amount of protein as quickly as possible after their workout. Now, with active consumers, I think that um, protein enough is a word enough for them. Um, The source of the protein is still a little bit uh, down to education. So as Kate alluded to, there are so many different proteins out there now. Is whey still number one? Um, We'd like to think it is, uh, but we'll be see there is a big growth in uh, plant and vegetable proteins. Now, if you look at what consumers are actually looking at on a pack, active consumers want taste. So we have to remember that the word protein is almost a secondary benefit. Taste is number one. So what we um, try to achieve through Volac is creating protein ingredients that can add not only protein fortification to everyday foods, but also to taste. So if you can make high-protein tasty ice creams, high-protein tasty cookies, suddenly this mindless, mindful snacking, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, becomes much more permissible because you've got the taste and you've got the protein. So I do think that uh, provided you are giving the consumer the taste benefit (laughs) of the product, the secondary benefits, uh, you know, just a a, a tick box. Yeah, so the word protein is all well and good, but taste is is always king, really, isn't it? Mm. I I suppose the other thing is that with the enormous rise in veganism, um, people need to get their well vegans need to get their protein from somewhere and the kind of lack of knowledge of how to cook at home with vegan products that are going to provide protein you know with pulses etc um, is driving driving um, p- packaged products with protein in or driving the growth of packaged packaged products with protein in them um, perhaps I don't know whether have you with um, the whey protein have you found that's a, an issue with the rise in veganism? Sorry, I've, I've asked a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is certainly something that Mike and I are in discussions about outside of this meeting. Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly um, interesting at the moment. First, to just address some things that were mentioned around the, the how how sustainable is this market and 
you can't just simply slap high protein on a product. Consumers are often aspirational. So if you say to them, you know, what do you think of protein? They'll tell you it's great. They can't get enough of it. The average person won't be able to tell you how much protein they consumed in the last 24 hours, how much protein they should be getting. And actually, when it comes to ingredients like protein, consumers are less likely to under-consume when it comes to protein compared to other ingredients like fiber. And the taste is a massive issue at the moment because, again, it's got to be remembered, consumers still pick these products up for a convenient health boost. You may get, as I mentioned, like bodybuilders, athletes who will pick a product up and it doesn't matter about that chalky taste or the texture. It's a means to an end. When it comes to the everyday consumer, uh, they want that product to be compromise-free. They want it to be guilt-free. So firstly, um, taste is a crucial thing. And what we've seen is obviously there's the move away from just whey protein and diversification. And the big challenge for both whey and plants at the moment is overcoming consumer skepticism that may, may be drawbacks with these products, irrespective of whether it's whey or irrespective of its plant-based protein. Um, and not just whether one lacks nutritional value, but crucially, if that one if it has a good taste. In terms of um, veganism, um, what we've seen is um, there's certainly changing dietary habits. Um, consumers are looking to cut down on their meat intake. Um, something more prominent than uh, veganism, in my personal opinion, is the, is the rise of the flexitarian, the person who can't give up meat for, for good, but what they want to do is just say, um, you know, perhaps one day a week I'll cut it down. It started in the with the Meatless Monday campaign in the US for the beginning of the 21st century, and kind of grown to a worldwide event. Um, so what I would say is perhaps for ch reducing in meats will have a small influence on the desire for plant-based protein, but otherwise I, I, I wouldn't say it massively, massively influences that. Okay. So what's the most successful um, either claim or ingredient or product that you've brought out in, in, in recent times? Um, can I ask you first, Kate? Right. So um, I suppose we have... Two, I, we have two products that you can actually buy. Yeah, uh, books, so recipe books, and Kate Percy's Go Bites. So I'll talk about the, the Go Bites, which I think would, I would say that because of the books, we have a, a following of sports people or active people who want to fuel themselves naturally. So um, the biggest sort of selling thing about the Go Bites is that they are all natural and very, very simple. And I think that's a... Well, I hope it's a growth area. <laughs> it seems to be that people just want to eat, you know, eat something that's not full of, um, you know, fillers or extra sugars or anything like that. So that would be the the, the biggest selling point for for us. Fab. Okay, and Joe. Um. I'd like to say it's easy as one thing. I think it's a combination. So at Simix, we've very much taken a category approach. So we've just launched Pro to Go, for example, but. It's not about one thing. You've, yes, you're right, taste is the most important. But if you haven't got great packaging that appeals to people and it's easy to shop, if you haven't got the right location in store so people find it on the right missions, it's a combination of, of kind of category and insight that drives the best product mix, the best packaging, the best design. And you know, we're investing a huge amount this year in, in actually 
getting retailers or shoppers into retailers stores to drive the category so it, I think it's a mixture of things but I would say definitely a category focused approach in terms of how we launch uh, our Protego and Simex brands. So that's defining the categories so that people know where to get it in the supermarkets. Absolutely and I think retailer education is we haven't touched on it so far is really important I mean it's all to play for there um, so Sainsbury's for example and everyone's seen it in the, in the news they've done seven trial stores for example focusing on huge spaces on, on wellness and you go to the States and you go to Australia and indeed the Nordics. I mean, they are so far ahead of us. The average spend per capita in in, in, Aust- in the US is nearly double of that of an individual in the UK. So not only have we got penetration headroom, we've got spend per head headroom. So, you know, the growth of this category, like I've said, there's more to go for, for sure. And, you know, this will become big. This will become mainstream. I think the biggest challenge at the moment is retailers understanding I think small retailers get it. They know it's snacking. They know it's front of store. I actually think it's the bigger retailers understanding where do they cite these categories in store as we see the snacking evolution happening. Okay. And Mel, obviously, you work, it's interesting, I think, because you work with a range of different producers as well with your, with your product. So um, which are the things that, you, that you've seen that really rise to the surface as things that have been phenomenally successful that maybe surprised you even? Um, I mean, obviously, we're an ingredients company. So, yes, we work with a lot of brands and a lot of manufacturers as well. I think, I mean, I could talk about all of our ingredients. No, no. I'm only allowed to talk about one. <laughs> um, so I would probably focus on uh, Volactive Pro2O, which is a whey protein isolate ingredient that can be added to um, clear drinks in order to give fortified protein, protein but clear, so protein water, Sorry, exactly. The, the, the protein water, I see. And that's it, because what we've seen, particularly from these active consumers that we've spoken about, is there may still be that little bit of a, you know, I don't want to be seen with a shake in a gym, but actually having um, a bottle of water that is clear and looks like water, which is very important to them, after a workout, and get, you know, sort of 10, even 20 grams in a 500 ml bottle by this ingredient. So that's really interesting it's, it's getting into the mind of the people that use it and giving them another another way to consume it, I suppose. Absolutely. It's, you know, if you don't want to have a heavy shake after a workout, there wasn't an alternative. You know, if you haven't got the, the stomach capacity for a bar straight after a workout, how are you going to get that protein mm. in that very important 30-minute window after your workout? Protein, water. Oh, that's a first for me. I've never, I'm yeah, quite excited about that. Okay, so so let's talk a little bit about about how the category is going to perform from now on. Have you seen changes in the way that these things have been positioned contributing to um, to the growth in the in the sector yeah absolutely I think with this positioning is absolute key um, what's differentiated protein and sports nutrition from other fads is that consumers buy into the claims more uh, the products aren't positioned as a magic bullet health solution that will um, cure everything and that you don't have to exercise you don't have to live healthily um, People also trust protein. They see it as a credible ingredient. For example, they're more likely to have heard of proteins than an antioxidant and be able to tell you what it does simpler than it's an ingredient that's good for you. And I think what we've seen with these products is that they're, they're not positioned as a magic bullet health solution. They're simply positioned as a better for you. And that appeals to two types of audience that you've got with these products. Uh, your consumers who are educated about the products, who know about how many grams of protein they should be having, about the benefits of different protein sources, um, will go to the products. But for the everyday consumer, they will go to these products, not necessarily because they know the benefits. They won't be able to reel off four or five benefits of this product. They can simply tell you that it's it's better for you. 
And what they see with that is they want these products for more general things, such as general health and wellness to live a fitter and healthier life rather than, say, to in increase my lean muscle mass to make me go that extra extra mile faster. Um, so I think the positioning is very much has helped, and that's it's kind of helped with the positioning of mainstream products that are simply better for you snacking products often. For the for the listener who can't see Mike, he is absolutely ripped. So, uh, <laughs> just but he's a complete expert in this area. Um, now, just while we're with you, Mike, um, can we talk about the, about the future? What, what do you see as the growth projections for the sports nutrition um, area? And are and uh, is there any specificity to it? Are there specific um, parts within sports nutrition that are growing faster than others? Yeah, the, the market will continue to grow. There's absolutely no doubt about that. I mean, the, the sheer amounts of new product development um, means that will be the case. Uh, consumer demand will continue to grow. I mean, we, we touched on it earlier. We talk about the millennials who are key driver of this audience. And when we read about millennials, they're often seen as these happy, go-lucky people who've never had it better. And the reality is most of them are really tired, stressed, <laughs> Uh, constantly worrying about, um, you know, they, the, the concepts of a nine till five jobs disappeared. They're checking emails at all times. They don't sleep. Um, and what we're seeing is there'll constantly be a demand for products that offer an energy benefit. And protein is something that will be seen as a healthier alternative than your traditional energy boosting product categories. There is the element of scepticism. Um, as more products come on the market, consumers might start to feel, are these products generally benefiting me? Are you creating a solution for a problem that doesn't exist? The one thing that I would say with the sports nutrition market as well, which is key for its growth in the long term, is we see all this product innovation, and the packaging can often be very cool, it's fun, it's dynamic, and it aims, appeals to 18 to 34-year-olds brilliantly. It doesn't appeal to 55-year-olds as much. And this is a market that's around three times the size of the millennials. It's growing. Uh, they often demonstrate um, health issues that align with the need for protein. And yet a lot of these products, um, a more senior consumer will walk past and simply say, well, this product isn't for me. This is for the 18 to 34-year-old urbanite who works long office hours. And I think whilst the market will grow, um, the one thing that needs to be done to completely capitalise that is perhaps look at repositioning and focusing on how can you make this a wider market and, and target consumers who who need this energy boost that don't align with that core audience. Exactly, and I agree, because if you actually look at the composition of growth in the category over the last two years, yes, you, half of it is coming from the younger demographic, but actually the, the fastest growing contributors to the growth within the nutrition, active lifestyle nutrition, how we define it, is actually empty nesters and people that are going into retirement, you know. I think it was it Jennifer Aniston was on the front of a newspaper the other day at 50 looking fantastic. You know, everybody wants to be fitter and it's more about body strength and being fitter. It's it's not about being mass. It's not about being skinny at people anymore. It's about being healthy and being strong and living longer, healthier, happier lives. So I agree with you. Like, I think there's definitely space there in terms of future as the category matures. You know, at the moment, you've got loads and loads of bars with 15 flavours. From my perspective, that's not going to grow the category. What you need to do is you need to tap into people's lifestyles to deliver products that give them benefits on a daily basis, whether it's whether it's from an ingredient into a milkshake or whether it's a pancake or whether it's your baking. But I think also the eat states. So, you know, it's not just about bars. We've got cookies, there's flapjacks. You know, you grow through incremental eat states and need states linked to lifestyle and occasion. And I think that's what's really going to fuel the growth in the future. 
Which goes back to what you said about about defining the category. How do you defi- how do you define or not define the category now, rather than sports nutrition? Um, well, defined it as active lifestyle nutrition. So my mission mm. in life is to to get Nielsen and IRI to change their definition <laughs> of it, um, because I think what you've got you've got essentially you've got more serious at one end, which we kind of call the everyday athlete. And then at the other end, you've got what we call lifestyle adventurous. Your everyday athlete, they'll be doing their meal prep on a Sunday. They'll make sure they've sorted out their ingredients. So they've got their right protein daily. And then they'll go up the mountain and work out how many times the wheels spin and the energies. Whereas your, your active lifestyle, the, the normal human being, probably just wants to go on the bike and get to the top of the mountain and feel great. So there's a real, you know, it's all the motivations are different. Um, and I think that's where you've got this whole evolution of, the, I call it like the democratization of sports nutrition into active lifestyle. And there's a broad spectrum and there's a space for everybody in it. Mm. Okay, Mel, the, the future then. So um, looking ahead at products that you're working on with, um, with your clients, is there a, a shift in the, in the focus? There certainly is. As I've said, it's um, all about the taste, um, the accessibility of protein, particularly in everyday foods, but most importantly, as we've alluded to, in everyday supermarkets. So it's no longer this sort of quite scary place to have to go onto the web and order your protein and you know, or go into a specialist shop where you are surrounded by bodybuilders, and these places do still exist. But you know, if you are a you know, 45-year-old female who just wants to up your protein intake because you're a little bit worried about healthy ageing, you may have seen your parents not age as healthily as you'd have wanted them to, Uh, going into the supermarket and buying a yoghurt fortified with protein or a bread or a muffin, an ice cream, all of those sort of things I think are the key applications that, um, you know, our business certainly look to fortify with the protein ingredients that we develop like delicious. Yeah. Okay. So, Kate, um, how about go faster um, for seniors then? Do, do you see? Do you? I mean, you know, looking at, at different sectors, is this important for you? Somebody actually sort of having to sell these things. Um, I, I think it's a really important market and um, one that I represent. In fact, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think, yeah, I, I I agree with Joe in in how how that market has changed so massively. Um, and it has to be called active lifestyle instead of sports nutrition now. I think everyone accepts that, really. Um, I think you can split it by um, the real zealots, what we call the zealots, who are those guys up the mountain um, weighing out their, their their food. Then the balancers, which are kind of most of us. Um, then we've got people who are still interested in weight loss and calorie control and doing exercises exercise for that but then we've got the mature market and the mature market actually I don't know what size it is but um you probably do (laughs) Mike (laughs) 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 we'll come back we'll come back to you on that um but uh, we have uh, for instance we were at the London Marathon show um a couple of weeks ago, in fact, end of April, and um, the <laughs> the I was absolutely astounded by the the spectrum of age there. So there were there were young girls of eighteen who were about to run the marathon, and there was um, I would say the the majority of people were probably over 35 but there were a lot of people over 60 a lot of people um who were just you know trying to to make those make those steps to to have a a healthier aging yeah and they weren't you know they weren't 
they weren't runners who'd been running for the whole of their lives. They were runners who had just thought, actually, I'm going to I'm going to give it a go. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of them. And I think there's there is a, a big market um, for them. Yeah, And I'd say one of the interesting things actually about protein intake is the older you get, the more protein yeah. you need. So, <laughs> so actually, the older you get, you need more protein than a, than a bodybuilder. So. Yeah. With the education, I think, is important there as well. Well, that, that's a really interesting point because, I, I mean, one thing I do know is that there's been a, a bit of media negativity about, about the proliferation of sports drinks and the, the concept of everyone needing protein. Um, how do you feel about that? I mean, the, the, there's there's been a... a I, quite quite a backlash but there have been quite a few articles in in papers online saying you don't really need more protein um how how would you how would you counter that uh, sorry how would you counter that mel i mean it kind of depends what the context is um clearly there's a need for protein for every <laughs> every mm-hmm. person with an, on the planet um and that will vary depending on your activity levels so if you are quite sedentary you only probably need about you know one gram per kg but if you are very active performance consumer or older, you're going to need two grams per kg of body weight. So I would say that, I mean, you can't argue with science. You know, it is a fact. Maybe there is an overconsumption of protein where the education piece hasn't quite been done well enough. But I think more and more people are counting macros. And um, when you look at apps like, um, apps like, it was bound to happen at some point um, so things like carb monitor you know all these apps are really growing and people can just put in their body weight their height their, their sex and they are getting how many macros they need and counting you know their protein grams yeah um, we run an education program uh, where we go into schools and we um, well basically we, we teach kids five basic recipes that they can have under their belt in in their repertoire um, before they leave home. Um, And the the big thing about it is really for them to understand the link between what they eat and their health and well, their mental and physical well-being. And I have to say that there, there is such a massive lack of knowledge of what protein is, of what fats, what, what the macros are. Um, you know, we think, oh, well, everybody knows what protein does. They don't. They really don't. And what they really don't know is how to translate that into real food that they put into their bodies. So a, 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 a sixth former who was doing a BTEC in sports nutrition, in, no, sorry, in P, the PE BTEC, said to me, I said, how are you enjoying this cooking? And he said, oh, it's amazing. It's amazing because I, I know what fats are. I know what protein is. I know what carbohydrates is but I don't know what it means in terms of food. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. So if you look at it, traditionally, people have looked to the government to give them their guidelines on what they eat. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's a lot of distrust in, about all governments at the moment, whether it's US government, UK government, European, or what have you. So what's happening is, in, in the absence of the trust in that, they're looking to manufacturers and also retailers to kind of drive this agenda because actually their trust levels with retailers and manufacturers are probably going to be higher in the long term. Um, might sound a bit controversial, but I do think that that's why, you know, there's that's why retailers are so important in terms of driving this agenda. Um, and then obviously the government have just announced, is it 2024 for the reduction in calories? So not only have they had their sugar program, they've now got a calorie reduction program. So they're just legislating. But ask people underneath it, do they understand? To your point, they just don't. That's why retailers and manufacturers need to help educate as part of this this whole 
in this whole world that's exploding out there. Fantastic. Okay, well, you've been listening to Table Talk on the future of sports nutrition with Joe Dell, Mike Hughes, Kate Percy, Mel Bellows. Everybody, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Table Talk podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please share a review. If you like what you've heard, find out more on foodmatterslive.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook. Facebook.